0: studio of kpsu portland and in association with the department of history at portland state university this is beyond footnotes join us as we explore public local and world history through discussions with professors authors fellow students and alumni as well as local historians thank you for joining us i'm madeline and i'm jake hutchins um, so think of all of the things you hate is a tree included in that list If you ask arborists or horticulturalists, some of them may say yes, and may point to the Ailanthus, also known as the Tree of Heaven and the tree alluded to in the title of Betty Smith's 1943 novel, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Detractors of the Ailanthus usually point to its odor and proliferation, but is there more to the story of how and why this particular tree has become a symbol of urban blight and gained the nickname Ghetto Palm Trees? Joining us today is Dr. Catherine McNer, environmental historian and professor here at at PSU to talk with us about uh, recent research exploring the history of the Ailanthus and the ways trees and plants are personified and take on greater meaning. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great, so um,
1: to start, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do here at Portland State? Yeah, so as you said, um, my name is Catherine McNair um, and I teach environmental history and United States history and um, public history classes as well Mm -hmm. in the history department here. Um, And a lot of them overlap with the sustainability focus of the university as well. Awesome. Um, do you want to give us a bit of background about yourself, like where you're from, where you went to school? Sure. I went, um, I'm from New York originally, and I uh, went to NYU as an undergrad and then Yale as a graduate student. Um, and it's there that I started getting involved with environmental history kind of in a um, uh, sort of backwards way. I had come across – it had nothing to do with trees. It had to do with pigs. Um, and I came across a story about people rioting over pigs in New York, and that seemed really bizarre to me and I started researching it and it ultimately became my my dissertation and what became my first book um, and as I was getting into it, I realized that, oh, I guess this is environmental history because mm. it's involving animals and the city and public spaces um, and the natural world. And so I sort of backed into environmental history accidentally. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what is environmental history? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very broad. Um, it encompasses a whole lot. And it's, it's really, I mean, history for a, a while has kept um, the environment in the background. Um, but environmental history brings it to the foreground and looks at the ways that um, uh, it's, not just, it's not just the setting, but also it affects history, affects what happens, and it also, um, humans can affect the environment as well. So it can be everything from the history of the environmental movement, which is sort of a typical um, older strain of environmental history to kind of people re- uh, responding to climate change, um, in, whether it's in the 17th century or to the present day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great.
0: So I think we talked a little bit about pigs. How did you come across the ailanthus? Like, what, what,
1: where was the jump from uh, pigs to trees? Yeah, I did. I, in the in that book, I did do stuff with some um, urban trees and mm-hmm. street trees, and the ways that people were um, starting to come around to street trees. There, there was a time where, like, New York did not want street trees at all. Um, but then I, I started looking into how some of these trees were embedded with a lot of history, or people saw them as witnesses to history, and I would find obituaries to trees in the newspapers. The way that you'd find an obituary to a celebrity today, there was like a, a page or two that was devoted to what that tree had witnessed after the tree had fallen down, and they were saying, well, but this tree, it had seen the city grow, or it saw George Washington come by, or whatever. And so when I got to Portland State and I was teaching public history classes, I started thinking about ways I could um, work both public history and environmental history together, and I started teaching this heritage tree class, which is really, so Portland has 300 trees that are, or so, um, trees um, that are designated as landmarks, essentially, for their for various characteristics. Um, and I started thinking, those are like the hero trees, and I started thinking about the villain trees, and like what would never be designated um, as a heritage tree, and mm-hmm. the, the is one of those villains.
0: Yeah. Uh, could you give us a, a brief rundown of how, I guess first how the ailanthus came to the U.S. and then how it, how it uh, was our shade tree and then came to be reviled because it has kind of a dual history.
1: Yeah, there were times where it was beloved. It was mm-hmm. really it was one of the most expensive trees you could buy in the eighteen twenty s for urban street trees. So during that time, like these cities uh, on the East Coast especially are urbanizing really fast um, right after the War of eighteen twelve. Um, a lot of people are moving into the cities, and with city growth, they suddenly start to see like, this is pre-air conditioning, so street mm-hmm. trees are important for shade, for keeping houses cool, for keeping streets cool. Um, and there are people who want to have um, like instant shade trees on the street. They don't want to wait a generation to experience uh, the shade that an oak tree might give. So they, they um, at, at the same time, there's this like celebration of everything Chinese mm-hmm. in the China trade. And um, Ailanthus trees come from China through Kew Gardens in London, and, um, and various horticulturists in London, and um, they're introduced uh, to um, especially one nursery in Queens, New York, um, co- um, called the Prince Nursery, and they distribute the trees all around the, the, they have a catalog that they send out. It's the first commercial nursery in the United States, and it, they send out a catalog to all these cities, and they have distributors, and the tree gets sent to all these cities all over the, the country. On the West Coast, it's slightly different. Um, Chinese immigrants also bring it in for the sake of medicinal purposes, um, and it's still has a, it's still a main ingredient in Chinese medicine, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's introduced in different ways. But, um, but it takes off, and then people lose control over it, and that's mm-hmm. where things start to go sour. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, the odor is definitely part of it, I would say, that the, it has it is very shady, but it, it does indeed have a pretty bad smell. Um, so what would you say? I mean, as, uh, odor aside, I think that the, the general thesis of your research is that there is some... Some social and racial aspect to why it became so hated. If could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I mean, the odor is important because yeah. the male the male version of the tree has um, a stink. It's not known as a stink tree, and and that. Being the case during the during a you know pre germ theory when miasmas were mm. understood to be you know smells could distribute disease that was a major issue, but also um, the fact that it was uncontrollable, mm-hmm. uh, re, uh, the fact that it would it would um, sprout up on its own um, uh, uh, was an issue for people, and that uncontrollableness kind of related to the way that people were also viewing Chinese immigrants. Right. Um, and so you see these, these rather mild mannered landscape architects who otherwise are kind of revered as, as kind of heralding kind of um, the beauty of spaces and things like that, who, who become like they, their racial bigotry just comes out in full force when they talk about this tree. And they're, they're um, saying pretty horrific things about like the, the um, how the China, te- the the pigtailed Chinaman of the tree world is the island. Th- mm-hmm. Things like that. they are the the treacherous heart of the Asiatics. It's it's just like these really, um, uh, you know, all this bigotry about the tree, and it's it's um, showing a lot of the colors of the 19th century, um, but then transplanted onto a tree. Right.
0: Yeah. I would say that's probably reflected in how it's alluded to in a tree grows in Brooklyn is that it's the symbol of blight in an area that is not predominantly white, or if it is white, it's you
1: know, definitely a, a more working class or lower class. Sure, yeah, and the fact that in 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 that book, it's also a sign of like hope springing forth, because like, th- right. th- these trees are resilient; they yeah. they will grow anywhere. they there, they. If you walk around Portland, you'll find them by um, dumpsters and in empty lots and uh, by abandoned cars and any place that's just not tended to, yeah. um, or or even intended places. But um, often, it's like a, a symbol that there's some. Uh, somebody not taking care of something, or that's what a neighbor would think. Um, cause, uh, so, so in in that book, it comes out in the the backyard, and it's almost like the the little girl in the book who's ab- who's able to like make a life for herself despite coming from um, uh, kind of a, a challenging family and um, home situation.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. So, do you
0: want to talk a little bit about um, when it comes to researching a tree or any type of tree? What are some of the primary sources? Like, it's not quite like if you're researching person or there's you know government records or something what would how do you go about doing primary research for a tree
1: it's yeah you have to be pretty scrappy mm-hmm. about it I mean sometimes people will talk very overtly about trees um, in newspapers for the, when some a tree evokes a lot of emotion um, positive or negative so you'll f- sometimes find editorials or things like that in a newspaper but often you like in if you're looking at Portland trees and you're trying to do the history of a Portland tree you have to kind of you have to look at pictures of people installing pipes in the in the mm-hmm. road in order to see the tree on the side and kind of find find the tree and, and just look around, the sake of, for the sake of the tree because nobody's yeah you know prior to more recent history nobody's writing permits to, to plant a tree and mm-hmm. um, it's it's harder to find in the sources but as long as you're scrappy and kind of can think of different ways of looking at maps or images or historic photos or um, or diaries or whatever, family histories, to kind of get at something that um, is often a needle in a haystack. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then, speaking of Portland trees, I asked Dr. Shonda the same question, and I know I didn't prepare you for this one, but what's your favorite Portland tree? Or do you have a favorite one or a favorite little story? Because I know that you were also involved in the Canopy Story project that we talked about during his interview.
1: Yeah, I, there are, there's a set, I'm, I'm well, I, so I, I don't know. Okay, I like these three really tall cedar trees that Mm -hmm. are in, um, as uh, Professor Shadows and I like to call them um, charismatic megaflora, Mm -hmm. Um, they are in um, the parking lot of the the Greek church um, in the Kearns neighborhood, it's like, it's 32nd and Gleason, Mm -hmm. Northeast Gleason, and they, I believe, have witnessed, and I, I have to do more research into this, so I can't, I can't say this like, completely, it's not completely verified yet, but I believe they were there when um, the prior uh, uh, building was there on that site, prior to the church, um, which was a home for unwed mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's this, this long kind of, there's some kind of interesting history there, and so I'm, I'm interested in kind of researching at that, at, that um, at some point, or I'll set some student out on it on that topic, because yeah. it seems like there's some some interesting story about this institution for unwed mothers that was then pushed out of Portland mm-hmm. um, afterwards, and the trees seem to have witnessed that. Interesting. Yeah. That's good. So
0: I think, speaking of that, of a tree that has, like, a really interesting history, and then the Ailanthus that has an interesting history, but then it's sort of off-maligned, what would you say is the greater lesson in the story of how... Trees and vegetation just are personified and take on these greater social meanings.
1: Yeah, we put a lot of meaning on things, humans. Um, We are seeing trees as witnessing our history, that we're putting value on those trees that witness Mm -hmm. human history. Um, There's this whole movement now called uh, Spontaneous Urban Plant, or there's a book, like a coffee table book. uh that was called spontaneous urban plants and there's a movement within uh ecology to kind of rethink these invasive species um, Mm -hmm. and um, these untended spaces there uh, emma maris is a a science writer wrote this book called um, rambunctious gardens a Mm -hmm. few years ago and you know it's kind of like rethinking the way that we value or or disvalue things like weeds or you know weeds is a movable a movable category Um, and uh what's considered invasive, it's kind of an, an um, immovable category too. So there's a lot of human history goes on to the, these plants. And with the Ailanthus tree, it, it has been loved, it's been hated, it's come back again with mm-hmm. the, the Tree Grows in Brooklyn book in the 1940s. It's, it's had like a rocky horse, uh, rocky course and um, the way that people have seen it. And now it's just seen as kind of invasive. But um, all these things, all these plants that seem, you know, a dandelion, which seems like a weed, like that. there's a history behind the way that we treat those plants and the way that we categorize them and think about what's controlled and what's not controlled and what's valuable and not
0: valuable. Right. Yeah. Great. So I've had the chance to work on some great interdisciplinary and public history projects specifically connected to environmental history. Could you speak a bit to the ways that environmental history and public history can overlap or complement each other?
1: Yeah, I think the fact that, Environmental history is place-based mm-hmm. um, and uh, can be often uh, pinned to various spaces, um, actually makes it valuable for public history because very, like, oftentimes really great public history projects um, are also space-based. You make somebody go into a place and re-envision what they're seeing or, or um, stop taking for granted something like the history behind a building or a, a site or a tree mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, to kind of imagine what had been there, like to go to uh, Albina near the Emanuel Hospital and imagine the buildings that once existed prior to the Emanuel expansion that's now an empty lot or something, you know, something like that. So the fact that it's place-based, I think lends itself well to public history projects Mm -hmm. and creative ones too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on now? I mean, how much can you give away? I know I've I've had a little glimpse into some of your early research on this new project, but
1: yeah, I've, I, I, so I ended up um, while researching tree catalogs, I fell into another rabbit down another rabbit hole of these these two female scientists from the mid nineteenth century, um, uh, Elizabeth Morris and Margareta Morris, um, who lived in Pennsylvania in the eighteen fifties, eighteen forties, and and made serious um, scientific discoveries, but have been largely forgotten because of, uh, um, well, for a variety of reasons, um, but but um, I was just kind of delving into kind of the ways that gender and environment um, overlap and the ways that these women were working within this very patriarchal society to create scientific knowledge, and yet we're kind of being held back in certain ways, but then also fighting for their... Um, uh, to be taken seriously at the same time. Cool. Do you have
0: anything else you want to talk about? I know we have to wrap up. We have class and stuff to get to after this. So sure. This is kind of a shorter
1: one, but no, uh, that, that's great. Thank you for thank you for having me today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yep.